near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side. Today we're going to share a rather new experience, or at least a newly posted experience, from Enderf.org, though the experience itself took place in 1990. This is Melinda again from enderf.org. I woke up the morning of October 31st, 1990, from a strange dream that I was pregnant again. I felt like a baby was in the womb, and my belly was round with a baby. I noticed that my period had arrived, and I was bleeding heavily. I was surprised because I had been breastfeeding. I called the doctor's office, and they said it was probably normal, but to keep watch on it. I packed up my newborn baby girl and book bag. Then I took a city bus to the university to attend classes the morning with my baby. I felt fine. It was only on the bus ride back home at about 10.30 a.m. that I felt something roll out of my body and down my pant leg when I stood up to get off the bus. Much to my horror, I realized it was a blood clot the size of a softball. I picked up my clot and gasped and stared at it. I made the decision that I wasn't going to be able to make the few blocks walking back home. I crossed the street to the hospital. I only made it as far as the grass out front of the emergency room. I was gushing blood and started to get dizzy and lightheaded. I tried to get the attention of two emergency room paramedics who were smoking out front, but I couldn't make a sound louder than a whisper. I tried to fall with my arms outstretched so that I didn't fall on my baby newborn girl. I passed out while falling to the ground with my baby in my arms. The next thing I remember was waking up in the emergency room. I was receiving emergency blood transfusions and told that I had probably retained placenta from birth. They told me that they would need to do an emergency DNC to help scrape my uterus. I then was taken to surgery. I was in surgery three more times that day, yet they couldn't stop the bleeding. I was given an experimental drug that was supposed to seize my uterus and make it clamp down to get the blood loss to stop. It caused me to stop breathing instead. They were able to revive me, and though they had fixed me, they took me to the maternity ward to recover and to be reunited with my newborn daughter who needed to be breastfed. The nurse who helped me to deliver her on October 1st 
was just getting started with her shift. She brought me a plate of food to try to get me to eat. When I tried to sit up, the hemorrhaging started again, and it was even worse than before. I was pretty weak. They started a crash cart and asked for my parents' phone number. I was shaking, cold, and going into shock. They weren't able to get the reading on my blood pressure, and my resting heart rate started to elevate. It was going 130 beats per minute, and then it was going over 150 beats per minute. I was in pain because the blood was leaving my head and arms and legs. They stuck a big needle in my neck and started pumping blood directly into my neck. I knew that I was dying and was not going to make it. My heart went up to 180 and then over 200. The amount of pain was unbearable. I was scared and didn't want to die, but couldn't take the pain anymore. Every cell in my body was screaming due to the lack of oxygen. I was given over 56 units of blood. I was scared, and so were the doctors and the nurse. I remember a doctor told me that they were going to operate and take my uterus out. He said that I might not survive the operation because I was so weak. I was asked to sign a medical waiver. A Catholic priest came into my room to give my last prayers. I could no longer move or talk or blink. The pain was too much. Then my heart rate hit 220. I heard them say I was in defibrillation. They were trying to shock my heart. I couldn't even use my eyes anymore. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't breathe. I learned what it means to lose total control. At my darkest and lowest and saddest moment, I realized that I wasn't alone. I realized that I had a guardian angel just to the right of me. I knew his name was Michael. He was holding my hand. I realized there was a second angel who was next to Michael. I rose above my body. I could see the doctors were very scared. I could see that my body was blue in color and in very grave condition. I was drawn into the hallway because I could hear my daughter crying for me. I tried to comfort the doctors and nurses. I wanted to tell them that it was okay. I could hear and see that nurses were fighting about the in the hallway and upset that I had been taken to the maternity ward. I should have been taken to the intensive care unit or the emergency room. At some point, a veil lifted. I was drawn into a long, dark tunnel that had a very bright white light that was shining love. I could hear harps and saw my great-uncle Harry, Ed, and Aunt Vicky. I was in total bliss and happiness. I was home. I didn't want to go back. I had a life review where I saw every single event from my life. I saw every act of goodness and kindness. I saw every act of spite or ill will. I also got to see it from the other person's point of view. Although time did not exist, this life review took forever. But in reality, it was only a blink of a second. 
I didn't want to go back because I was surrounded by love and the light was God. I realized that we are all brothers and sisters. We all love each other very much, but we live in fear on earth and that prevents us from realizing and remembering that we are all connected. I felt such incredible love. I saw courtyards with beautiful, vibrant roses that were more colorful than on earth. I saw colors that do not exist. I understood infinitely and all the knowledge of the universe. I saw white buildings that were open and in the sky. They reminded me of buildings from Greece and Athens. I saw the future for my children and I, where I came to understand that their father was not to play a role in their lives. I was told this so I could be strong and still love him, even if he was away. I was liberated. I no longer had to love or try to please this person. I knew I had to go back, but I really wanted to stay. I knew that it would hurt to go back to my body. I knew that this was home. The bright light filled everything and was totally God's love, unconditional and filled with such joy and peace. I woke up in the ICU. After resuming my life, I found that nothing in life was as hard as coming back. I found that school was easy and all of life's challenges are a breeze. I'm not afraid of death. I can read people's minds and see the future. I see articles on TV or in the paper, and I'm reading them 31 days in the future. I have dreams that come true, and I get to visit Michael the angel or my loved ones or pets that have crossed over. I can sometimes heal people or start engines or charge batteries or open doors with my mind. I've been the person to arrive to car accidents or suicides or drug overdoses on dozens of occasions. I have performed CPR and brought back to the earth or helped people to pass over. I was not surprised when the father of my child died a few years later. I had already been given that knowledge. Michael told me telepathically, we did not have to use words. I know when I'm going to die or may come close to it once again, I learned that everything we do matters. Even the person you smile to on your way to the bakery or work, even the creatures, big and small, that you bend over to pet, nothing goes unnoticed. It all matters. My purpose is to stand up for the meek, to be compassionate, but most of all, it is to love. And that is the end of Melinda's account. And wow, what an experience that is. First off, what a difficult situation. She's just a month after having a baby. And then she has kind of a dream that gives her a little bit of a premonition that something is coming. It is unlike what she uh, dreamed, which was that she was pregnant, and rather she was having a, 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 I forget the wording that she used, but she still had to pass, pass the placenta, it sounds like. Anyway, a lot of blood and a, you know, a quick 
walk across to the hospital later, and she passes out. Um, gratefully on the hospital grounds, I can only assume that those people on their smoke smoking break um, saw her fall or discover her quickly after, and apparently her baby is okay because it doesn't come up again. I I gather that that the baby is later in another room and crying for her, probably hungry and so forth. Gratefully again in the hospital where the hospital can take care of and feed the baby if necessary, but. As she is, her her blood pressure is getting uh, faster and faster. I'm sorry, her pulse rate is getting faster and faster. And, and she is in extreme pain. She just kind of gives up. Not, not willingly, but because there's nothing else to do. She can't move. She can't talk. She can't even blink. The pain was just too much. And this, I gather, is what people experience when they die from pain or the uh, things that are causing all the pain that that they're experiencing um, there comes a point where they just they can't hold on any longer I mean it's not a giving up it's a it, it's when the end comes if you will anyway the moment she dies she finds herself realizing that there is someone else there with her a guardian angel and somehow she knows that his name is Michael and that there's another guardian angel at her side also. And as she is beginning to feel this, um, this comfort from their presence, she is drawn up and out of her body. And, you know, she drifts out into the hallway. And it sounds like she's hearing her baby crying. And so she's trying to head toward the baby. And as she is doing so, it appears that a veil lifts. Now, I don't know what this means. I don't know what this looks like. Is it something visual? Is it something, you know, just so deeply spiritual that it overtakes the senses? I don't know. But she says that a veil is lifted and she is drawn into a long, dark tunnel that had a very bright white light that was shining with love. I think this is the kind of thing that could be an interesting movie scene, if you will. Um, that that what she is seeing before her perhaps um, tears open like a veil being lifted and and there is something beyond it. It's like the illusion is broken. And that's that seems to be exactly what's going on. The illusion of this life is broken and she is finding herself into, uh, traveling into this dark tunnel, into a light. And she recognizes this light as being God. Or at least she says, I was surrounded by love and the light was God. And then she finds herself just knowing things. It's, it's like um, um, intelligence is pouring into her. She says, I realized that we are all brothers and sisters, that we all love each other very much. But we live, implying that in this life, we live this mortal life in fear on earth that prevents us from realizing and remembering that we are all connected. She says, I felt such incredible love. 
And then she finds herself in a courtyard, or at least that she sees courtyards, with beautiful, vibrant roses, colors that don't exist here. The buildings remind her of Greece and Athens. Now, I am becoming more and more curious about these Greek and Athenian-type buildings that people keep coming across in the spirit world. I gather that there are all kinds of buildings, but these seem to be the ones that stand out the most. Were ancient Greeks inspired by you know, near-death experiences where they would see these buildings and then they are emulating them here? Or is it that uh, people returning to the spirit world are so impressed by that type of architecture that they, that they duplicate it there? I don't know. I, I, I don't know that it makes much of a difference. People are people. If you have something that you love um, in your home in America and then you move to Holland and they don't have that there, you're likely to emulate it there. Or if you are, um, if you visit Holland and you're really impressed with what you find there, you come back and you're likely to try to emulate it here or bring it here, whatever. I think it probably goes both ways. Either way, it's comforting to know that what we have here that we love, it's there also. At some point, she finds herself in the presence of her great uncle and her aunt and someone named Ed. I don't know if it's Uncle Harry Ed or if she's saying Uncle Harry and Ed and Aunt Vicky. I'm not clear on that. Um, but her uncle and aunt are there to greet her. Um, she's a great uncle and aunt. She's in total bliss and happiness. I, I gather that there were other people there, but she doesn't seem to be able to identify them. Um, but then she has some interesting insights um, after having a very, very detailed life review, which she doesn't give us the details of except to say, I saw every single event from my life, the, every goodness, every kindness, every spite or ill will that she ever experienced. She saw them and she saw them from the other point, person's point of view. And then she goes on to say, or to share again the insight that we are all brothers and sisters, that we love each other very much, but that we live on earth in fear, and that fear prevents us from realizing and remembering that we are all connected. She felt such incredible love. And you know, I find it interesting that she says that we all love each other very much. Now, I've heard in many near-death experiences that people often have sort of contracts with each other to fulfill certain roles in order to teach lessons, including um, some not very pleasant roles, such as being an abuser or, or bully or something in order to put another person into a position to learn the lesson that they need to learn. Now, this, this certainly does not justify acts of bully or abuse of any kind, but um, because usually it turns out that one of their reasons for going in that role is to break that cycle in their family. They can fail at that. They can choose not to follow their heart and choose not to um, let that, um, you know, terrible act go out of their lives, but it fulfills the secondary purpose of preparing 
someone for what they need to experience on earth. But the, the reason I think of that is because she says we all loved or we all love each other very much, but our fear on earth prevents us from remembering. It makes me think that even those who abuse us, even those who treat us terribly, even those who we have every reason not to forgive, that all of them are actually people that we deeply love and care for to a ridiculous degree by earth standards. They're, they're people that are so deeply meaningful to us. Everyone. We all love each other very much. And that we have these roles to fulfill on earth in order to help each other to learn forgiveness, to learn what real love is about. Because in the face of hatred and pain and suffering and cruelty, that is where love is tested at its core. And by learning to forgive, by learning to be able to hand over that, that resentment and to be able to give place for love in our hearts, we are able to expand and grow and progress in love, which is the purpose of this life, at least a major part of it. So I find that very interesting. I also love what she says at the end. She says, I learned that everything that we do matters. Even the person you smile to on your way to the bakery or to work, even the creatures, big and small, that you bend over to pet, nothing goes unnoticed. It all matters. And then on a personal note, she says, my purpose is to stand up for the meek, to be compassionate, but most of all, it is to love. Now that last part, most of all, to love. I gather that when it comes down to it, that's all of our purpose, to love. Now more specifically, um, Apparently, Melinda's purpose is to stand up for the meek, to be compassionate, and so forth. And obviously, all of us ought to seek and learn those lessons. Um, there may be individual ways or, or particular aspects of those things that we as individuals can offer, that, are, that we're here to develop and also to provide for other people. But I find it interesting that she says, even the creatures big and small, that you bend over to pet, nothing goes unnoticed. If, if what you do in any given moment is an act of love and compassion, it matters. It is very powerful. And I think it's funny when people talk about you know, oh, you talk to your plants, do you honestly think it makes a difference? And then they throw, have these experiments to, let's put these plants over here that we don't talk to, and these plants over here that we talk to, and let's see which grow, grows better. <laughs> I think it's a laughing matter um, to even look at it that way, because it's, it's not necessarily about the plants, okay? And I, I give that as a caveat, because it is about the plants too, because it's making a difference to them, you know, from this perspective. But when you show love to something or someone, when you show love, that holds power. No matter what it is, it holds power. And when you withhold or negate love, you're holding back from using 
power that you have. And from near-death experiences, we learn that everything has some form of life. And so when we act out of love towards the life around us, it has power, it has influence. So whatever you're going to do today, whatever you're, you're embarking on right now, or that you will be doing in the next hour, whatever, think about it that way and do it in compassion, in love, whether you're going to be alone or not. Do what you do out of love. Think about this. Let's just say you are a custodian and you clean a building after it's closed up. You're the only one who enters the building and the only, and by the time you exit, there will be no other person, no plants, no animals. What if, while you are there, you straighten something a little extra with a thought in your mind, this is for you, to the person who is going to to encounter it later. Just a, a little thought of, here you go, I hope this blesses your life in some small way. Just doing that, just having that thought of compassion and love has power, you guys. Whatever it is that you're doing, do it out of love. And I think what you'll find is that it's very difficult to be resentful towards people when you have that frame of mind, when you're doing what you're doing as an act of love. Whether or not you ever see the results, whether or not there are any results, and I can attest from these experiences that it will have a result, but even if there weren't going to be a result, those acts matter. They are who we are. We are beings of love. And the more we act in that type of compassion and love, the closer we come to who we really are. And the more we are transcending this mortal physical being and becoming more of what we are intended to be, more of what we have the capacity to be. We're superheroes, you guys. With all the spiritual gifts that are at our disposal and the gifts that God has given us individually, everybody looks at their own gift and says, eh, mine's not great, but Betty's over there. Hers is incredible. Or Melinda, she can do all this incredible stuff. Just looking down on your own gifts doesn't actually help or serve anyone. But using those gifts and serving others with the gifts that you have, that's where the real power is. That's where love goes from being something obscure and, and um, abstract to something real and meaningful and deep. So please, whatever you do, do it out of love. So if you would like to contact me, you can do so by emailing chaz at ndepodcast.org. If you would like to share your own experience, please do so. Either email me directly. You can also email John, who is at john at ndepodcast.org. If you would like to be interviewed, John does incredible interviews. If you would like your experience read on the podcast, I would be more than happy to read your experience on the podcast. You can also support the podcast by purchasing my book or audiobook, Life in the Spirit World. You can also go to patreon.com slash ndepodcast to become an ongoing monthly contributor. 
But you guys, most of all, the biggest way you can support is just by listening. And so thank you, all of you, so much again for listening.